Hello, and welcome to Memorial Hall Library's Shelf Hell podcast. I'm Stephanie Smith, a reference and cataloging librarian. And I'm Jerry D. Ehrman, the assistant head of circulation. We are continuing our discussion of the library book by Susan Orlean as part of Andover's 2021 Community Read. Uh, last episode, we covered chapters 7 to 11. This week, we will be discussing chapters 12 to 16. And in our next episode, we will be covering chapters 17 to 21 for anyone who is reading along with us. Uh, if you want to find out more information about the Community Read, you can visit our website, mhl.org. Um, I think that's about everything for the intro, so let's get into it, Jerry. Where would you like to start? Um, well, I think the notes that I have um, for Chapter 12 um, talk a little bit about censorship. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I was, it was quite interesting about it. Um, one of the quotes from the book said that books considered of dubious moral effect or trashy, ill-written ones or flabby ones mm -hmm. were excluded from the collection. What, what's a flabby book? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was wondering that too. A little bit of a 19th century fat shaming happening there. I mean, yeah, like, like, weak, like, weakly written, like, it's not strong. I, you know. What, I mean, they would censor something like that? Well, I guess, you know, maybe they would. I mean, yeah, maybe they would. I, I don't know, but that does remind me of a quote that I noticed when I was flipping through just now um, from, from a very bitter Charles Lummis when he was outgoing after the library board had kind of pushed him out. He was, uh -huh. uh, and he said, you will remember I was not a sweet girl graduate of a library school. I was a scholar and frontiersman and a two-fisted he person and that I went to the roots of that sissy library and made it within two years an institution of character, a he library of which we were all proud. Oh. So I almost wonder if the flabbiness is somehow meant to be like, related to women or weakness, um, which clearly was not, you know, were not qualities that were valued at that, at right. that time. Um, I believe that quote is from the end of chapter 13, so kind of the same time period as the quote you're dealing with. But yeah, a flabby book, it just like... <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's like, you know, really, what, what, what is a flabby book, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess technically paperbacks are like physically sort of flabby, but I don't think that's what they were talking about. I don't think books were issued in paperback back then. No, I don't think so. I think they were all uh, all hardbound, but yeah, the criteria are definitely different from what we would use today for inclusion. Right. Um, which today, you know, is, I guess content does come into it, but more in the question of like, you know, if we already have five biographies of George Washington, do we really need a sixth? Like, is it adding anything new to that? Right. You know, or, or not, that kind of thing, where it's like, you know, at a certain point, you've kind of, you've got what you need. <laughs> right, right. Um, exactly. Otherwise, you know, we would look, I think, more at, more at condition, or I guess if the content was really dated, you know, you don't really want a medical textbook from the 1970s on the shelf like that is oh gosh no things change <laughs> yeah, right that information is not current so yeah definitely uh definitely a very different set of criteria that they were working with in the early days 
I also I also like that he wanted to since I think he was kind of obliged to include some books he didn't like, he was the one who wanted to um to get a brand like that you would use on cattle made. Yeah. <laughs> he had hired a blacksmith to make a branding yeah. iron. Yeah. The skull and crossbones. Not at all dramatic. Uh, you know, I'm um, surprised he didn't set the library on fire by branding all the books. I know, right? Maybe it was his ghost that was the real <laughs> that was the real cause of the uh, what 1986 fire. <laughs> yeah, poor Harry Peaks kept getting all the blame for it, and it was this branding iron from Lummis. <laughs> yeah, Lummis's ghost with his branding iron. Oh, that's my that's my personal favorite idea so far. Um, yeah, maybe not, maybe not in most likely, but. Certainly and most enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, you know, the bookmark idea was kind of nice where they took the bookmark and put books that are less, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, the books that they could read instead of that one. Right. Right. You or know. in addition to that one. Yeah. Um, which, yeah, was, it's an interest. I mean, we definitely publish lists of read-alikes today and right i think less with the idea of like oh this book you're this like popular book is kind of crap and so we want you to read these other ones instead but more just like oh if you liked the library book you might also like these 10 books um, right but yeah i do i do like that idea of offering suggestions for further reading or I mean, hopefully with nonfiction, you would get that just from browsing the shelves. You know, if you're right. looking at a book on diabetes, hopefully you're going to see that it's on the shelf with, you know, 5, 10, 15 other books on diabetes. And it, right. you, know, you might decide to look at a couple and see if you're getting the same information or, you know, or not. Right. Um, right. You know. And they also talked about... Um, Tessa Kelso, when she was director, yeah, the book um, that she had ordered um, was by a French author, and I don't speak French, but it's oh, I do. Richpin, yeah, like that's that. actually pretty good. Richpin, yeah, if we really want to be French about it, but I'm fine with Richpin. Okay, that's right. And the book, the book was called Lucade. Yeah, uh, which means the younger. I believe, but he was he was. Um, known for his erotic tone yes. in his books and i guess they she bought one right um and the book committee completely missed it mm -hmm. and you know like some books it sat on the shelf for a few years until an la examiner uh reporter just happened to spot it yeah and then it caused a commotion <laughs> yeah that was that was interesting i mean and it you know, was sort of a free speech thing where, um, you know, she was like, well, the library has the freedom of speech to, you know, to have whatever books we want on the shelf. Right. And I think it was a minister somehow got involved and he, you know, he was sort of publicly praying for her that she would remove the book. And so then she, you know, she tried mm -hmm. to sue him for defaming her. And he was like, well, it's my freedom of speech. And it was, yeah. Some things never change. <laughs> no, no, it's still the same. Although I do yeah. think today you're more likely to find erotica on the shelf of a library. Um, you will. Yeah, and maybe maybe that would be banned or challenged in some places, but... Um, I mean, there are a lot of books that you wouldn't think would be banned or challenged in a library, like Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. You know, has been challenged. 
right repeatedly <laughs> right not, not here i think to be clear no but, but no, yeah right. in various libraries across the nation um it's not the right season for banned books week but um but because of the annual banned books week you can find online for anyone listening who's curious the american library association on their website has um you know every year for banned books week they publish lists of the most frequently challenged books and uh, books right. are usually challenged rather than banned. Usually they say on the shelves, although not always. Right. Um, but yes, you will... It, it's still an issue that comes up today, although I think usually around different topics. Yeah, I mean, we... we I, th I don't think we hardly ever um, pull a book. Right. I mean, I... In my time here, 22 years, I don't think we've ever pulled a book. Yeah, it's it's yeah. pretty unusual. Um, I mean, it, it kind of goes against, you know, sort of core library values these days. Right. Um, you know, as much as we want to be inclusive, we also don't want to indulge in censorship uh, when right. possible. So, and I mean, maybe those would also be the situations where today you would be more likely to put something into a book where it's like, you know, also consider reading the, you know, like these opposite viewpoints if you want to get a full picture of the subject. Um, right. I don't, I don't think we would actually do that either. I think, I think that would draw more criticism than just leaving it alone. But Probably. certainly, certainly if someone asked us for recommendations, we could offer them. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I know, I actually, I thought it was really interesting how many aspects of the early librarianship uh, were, were topics that are still pertinent. I think it was also Kelso who, um, who wanted to, like, basically start a library of things collection. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, she had things like um, she wanted um, sports equipment, Yeah, you know, that people just couldn't get a hold of, you know, or couldn't afford to get exactly. or whatever available to borrow yeah i mean that was an idea way ahead of its time and of course then everyone was like you're crazy libraries are just books right um. <laughs> yeah she she had a broader picture of of things and yeah. uh, you know unfortunately she didn't have a chance to really see the fruition of no. it now because a lot of libraries have a library of things yeah i think most yeah. of our stuff is um tech stuff yeah, you know, you know digital conversions and right and we all we have a blu-ray player now we have yeah. um uh nintendo games mm -hmm. the yeah we Nintendo's. have the, the uh like the vhs to dvd converter that you can borrow that's always popular right. and, record uh, player we have a record player yeah yeah craft yeah kits. Our, definitely yeah the craft kits yeah. are maybe like a little bit less techy, but I agree. Most of Definitely. our library of things is more technologically. Although, yeah, there's the ukuleles. Um, right, and the guitar. Well, do we yeah. still have a guitar? Mm, I'm not sure about the guitar, but there's definitely we, ukuleles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and a um, keyboard. We have a keyboard. Oh, yeah. Keyboard. Yeah. So, and a projector with a projector yeah. screen. Yeah. Um, I uh, know. At least telescopes. One, Yep, we have the telescopes. I know Manchester by the Sea, their library now has snowshoes. Um, 
which is yeah. you know, more branching into I think those are maybe only borrowable by Manchester residents but um, probably yeah but yeah you know that's another thing that I've seen um Hamilton Wenham I don't know if they still do at one point they had a butter churn that you could borrow so, oh fun yeah you never know what's out there in the library of things it's uh it's <laughs> I know big it's got um baking pans oh yeah like the funny shaped cake pans right yeah yeah um, when I worked at, when I worked at Middleton before we, uh, we had a couple of cardboard, like life-size cardboard cutouts that we'd had for programs. So I cataloged uh -huh. those and made those borrowable. Oh. Uh, they didn't, they didn't get borrowed too often. And usually it was by employees of other libraries who wanted them for their own program. So, uh -huh. which is great. But, you know, if anyone out there is looking for a cardboard cutout of C3PO and R2D2 or one of Colin Firth as Mr. Darcy... Uh, oh. worth getting in touch with the Flint Library in Middleton. <laughs> I assume they still have them. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a, you never know what's going to be in a library of things. <laughs> right. Right. That's but, funny. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, that, that was interesting that in some ways they were so ahead of their time. I mean, even Lummis was ahead of his time in wanting the library to really be accessible to people. You know, he kind of wanted his staff to, to approach people and be more proactive. I think the word he used was pounce, which is maybe a little too aggressive. But, that, yeah. <laughs> but to be ready to answer people's questions so that, you know, people in the library weren't sort of wandering around and feeling lost. Right. Um, but, but yet in other ways, at that time, the early library was, you know, doing things that today would be outdated or just you know, not acceptable. I mean, charging, originally, even though it was a public library, they charged that $5 a year membership fee. Yeah, which was a lot for for most people, yeah. um, except for the wealthy back right. then, so that it was basically a wealthy men's club. And exactly. They, and they didn't allow women, only in certain parts. Yeah, and they didn't allow children at all. Right. Um, which I think, you know, was less surprising to me because I kind of knew about that before, but I think is going to be surprising to a lot of people reading this. Right. Um, I mean, the children's room is such a huge part of the library today. Oh, know? yeah. I mean, that's uh, most of our programs are down there. Yeah. I, I can't imagine a public library today not having a children's room. Uh, or I know. Department. That just seems crazy. Right. Um, and yet in the late 1800s, it was pretty common across the country that children were not you know, there'd be signs, no children or dogs. Yeah, uh -huh. yeah. I think, um, well, Mary, Mary Jones was the one who just, she just stopped the, uh, you know, the age limit. Yeah. Uh, but it was like at 12, and then it was dropped down to 10 at one time. Yeah. And yeah, then I think, I think Kelso dropped it down to 13, and then Jones dropped it. Yeah, like you said, it went down to 12, and then 10, and... I'm not sure yeah. at what point, if she was, was she the one who totally got rid of the age limits? Or? Yeah. Nice. Um, and so not surprisingly, during, during those early years, um, you know, membership kept expanding as these barriers were taken away. Uh, once the yeah, I mean, abolished and, um, I was looking at some of the statistics they had in yeah. chapter 16. Oh, yeah. And um, in the early 20s, circulation went sky high. Yeah. Um, 10,000 people came in, 200,000 questions a year were answered, 1 million books were checked out. Wow. 
Wow. Multiple people reading journals and books. Um, there was a self-improvement craze. Mm. I mean, that must have been a very long craze because it's still happening. Yes. Um, and I think, you know, that, I mean, those were just the, yeah, those were numbers that I had found. Yeah. Yeah, that, I don't, I don't have the page either, but that did strike me when I was slipping through in preparation to record this, that, yeah, it really, the library use just exploded, and, uh, and they didn't have their own building at that point. No. So I think it was chapter, yeah, chapter 16 that really focused on, uh, kind of, how they got their first public library building, which wasn't until the mid to late 20s. Um, yeah, but the, going back to the um, chapter 12, yeah. it was interesting that the building, the first building when they opened up, um, it was given to them for free to use. It was small, right. but there was a um, courtyard where they had auctioned slaves. Yeah. But the slaves weren't, welcoming. They, they were Native Americans. Yeah, that was that, really surprising. Yeah. I mean, that was shocking, actually. Yeah, I know. I know there's a long history of uh, of mistreatment of Native Americans in this country, but I had no idea that that you know, as late as the 1870s, yeah. they were actually you know being being enslaved. Or I think technically it was framed as a sort of indentured servitude, but because um, right, I guess they, according to that, if they worked off their bid, they right. can become free or go on. But right. You got to wonder how often that uh, that actually happened. Yeah. Somehow I, I can't imagine that it was a fair system set off up for them. Probably not. But yeah, right. It was, it wasn't like, it kind of skirted around being technically slavery, but in practice seems, uh, you know, yeah, like slavery, which would not be a really welcoming neighborhood for, um, for the first public library in Los Angeles. No. Although given how exclusive it was at that point, I... I suspect they would, you know, they weren't really concerned with that. <laughs> right, right. Um, but yeah, that that was wild. I mean, and then, you know, less offensive, but still kind of inappropriate locations over the years. They were in a department store for a while. Yeah. You know, like half of City Hall, which that kind of thing still happens sometimes today right. in smaller towns. That makes more sense. But, um, but yeah, really wild to me that, like Los Angeles, I mean, I guess it wasn't a major city in those days. So it's less surprising maybe that they didn't have their own library building for so long. Well, Lomas had said at that point that um, he came from Boston and he said LA was just, it was boring. Yeah. He said there was more happening in Boston. Yeah, right, um, LA was just some dirty little backwater. Right. <laughs> and Boston was this big metropolis. Exactly. A sort of center of culture and art and, you know, performance, what have you. Which, uh, which is hard to really get your head around because, I yeah. mean, traffic in Boston's bad, <laughs> you know, because there's no rhyme or reason to the streets. Right. But L.A. is even worse. Oh, yeah. The last time I drove a car in Los Angeles, I think was eight, eight or nine years ago. And, uh... uh -huh. Yeah, that was, it was crazy. I, you know, it's wild. Definitely worse than Boston. Yeah. Which seems incredible, but, but yeah, the shoe was really on the other foot then that, you know, at the time, at the time of the early history, Los Angeles is not the city that, right. that we think of today. Right. Um, 
when we hear Los Angeles, but but it was I'm sure know, their streets are better mapped out too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they are. Well, actually, I'm glad you mentioned maps. That brings us to chapter oh, 14, yeah. I think. Um with the with the current day Los Angeles Public Library's uh map map collection almost seems like too small a word for it. Yeah, I, I mean it's huge. Um Glenn Creaston, I guess, is the senior mm -hmm. uh librarian in charge of the map department currently. Yes. And um they had map donations from um from everywhere and I guess they had a big huge um collection from uh, John Feathers. Yeah, the Feathers collection. Um and they actually had a map of the 1932 LA Summer Olympics. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was an amazing find. That was really cool to read about. I should I'd be interested to look on their website and see if they have that digitized and like available publicly or not. I did I did look. Oh, um, yeah? I did look at the map collection a little bit. Yeah. I didn't see the uh, the uh, Olympics. I didn't really look. I just was right. kind of poking around a little bit just to kind yeah. of see what was there. But there are um a lot of them have been, been digitized. Yeah. That's great. I mean, it was really interesting also that um yeah, to kind of get an inside look at how they index the maps or, you know, really the the sheer amount of work that goes into getting something, you know, a big collection like that really put in order. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess there were a lot of points that they had to, um, you know, that they were categories, categorizing them, you right. know, to get them, you know, um, cataloged. Exactly. And I mean, uh, must yeah. have been hard. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it was, it was interesting to kind of meet through the book, the, the volunteer who actually has been helping with a lot of their uh, their map cataloging and indexing. Right. Uh, CJ, what's his last name? Uh, I don't know. I just, I wrote down CJ as my notes, but he yeah. um, was hearing impaired and autistic. Yes. And, and kind of with his autism came, uh, you know, sort of like deep, knowledge of maps like right. obsession with maps and so he's really the perfect person to, right. to do the job i mean it really struck out to me or it stuck out to me um when you know the author susan orlean was there and she met cj and he was like oh what's your street address and she said it and he was able to right away say oh it's gonna be on this map of la you know right. like, on this page in this like grid box that was amazing and, yeah and they checked and it was right i mean yeah like that's the person you want for this job right um i mean so i know i made a note that um the the map collection there at los angeles public is one of the five largest map collections in the u.s at least at the time this was written um and i just can't even fathom the size so i'm sort of i'm you know like marginally familiar with Boston Public Library's Leventhal Map Center, uh, which is in their, you know, the Copley Square branch. Right. And when it's reopened, it's a great place to visit. I've been in there once or twice. I've looked at their website. And that to me seems enormous. But, um, oh, I, I think I looked on their website and they have something like 100,000 maps. Whereas in just the Feathers collection alone, I think there are 200,000. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to me, the Leventhal Center seems huge. But if, uh, I mean, you know, the map collection in L.A. just must be orders of magnitude bigger. 
Yeah, that must have been quite quite an undertaking to to do all that. Yeah, I mean, and I'm sure that they're still working on it. Right. Exactly. Oh, I'm sure they are. And it's kind of such almost a fluke that they ended up with the feathers collection specifically. I think, uh, you know, when when the collector died, the you know there weren't any immediate heirs or like there wasn't any immediate family and so the you know kind of the relatives who hired the realtor to to just sell the place when the realtor showed up he realized that like oh this is maybe a valuable collection that right. should just be tossed in a dumpster um, right but like what a stroke of luck that that he thought of that and he thought to call the public library oh yeah yeah because i mean anybody who didn't realize it would have just thrown them in the dumpster and they would have been right. lost forever yeah um, you know, and I mean, if that had been in some, you know, tiny little town somewhere, I mean, we were a pretty big library for, you know, for a small town. We right. could not handle a donation of 200,000 <laughs> maps. <laughs> you know, I don't even know what we do with them. <laughs> yeah, I, like, we, we would not, I think we would not be able to accept that. Presumably, we would forward them to someone like Boston Public Library. Um, but, you know, yeah, I mean, just so many you know so many things aligned to make that possible um and then to have cj this volunteer who you know has the knowledge to to actually index them in any sort of a timely manner right uh it was really a a stroke of luck right um not not the kind of stroke of luck that the arson investigators were having no no um, because they still, they still really don't know, and they don't know, I mean, yeah. you know, chapter 15 talks about the fire and mm -hmm. how it could go unnoticed for such a long time. Right. And, um, you know, as, as we had said before, I mean, why not? Couldn't have been the branding iron. <laughs> right. Like, who knows? Old ring in there no, for decades. You know, it, 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 you know, um, with the author talk that I mean not the author talk but with the uh, mm. group talk we did a little while ago yeah. um, you know I kind of like when you think about it if you're if you do campfires right you know um, you take a roll of newspaper and you tie it up really tight and you try to burn it it's really hard to burn yeah and then you take books that are lined up close right. together and sandwiched with other books right that must have been really hard to burn and it must have right. taken a long time for that to really get going. I mean, it's kind of amazing that it was able to get going at all, you know, because yeah. like you say, a book, I mean, once the book is really going, it goes up quickly, but to get it started, yeah. is, you know, is a lot, it's a lot harder. Um, so, I mean, they, they fire could have been, you know, burning and smoldering for a long time before that. Uh, right. You right. Know, yeah. And you know, who knows? Maybe it just been stupid luck that um, Peaks was found getting a cup of coffee in the staff lounge, or right. you know, found you know in the staff area that wasn't supposed to be in in the stacks. Yeah. You know, it could have just been his dumb luck. But right, right, you know. it totally could have been. And then he just embroidered a story because he liked attention. I mean, right. Everyone who knew him kind of said that that was. A real possibility that you know he often would spin tall tales um, every time he told somebody he added a little bit more to it right. to make it a little more interesting exactly and then he, you know, shaved and cut his hair 
Yeah. As well, to change his looks. Right. Which does seem suspicious, but, like, maybe he wanted to seem suspicious, you know? Maybe that was his idea of a fun time. Um, Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's frustrating how hard it is to investigate arson, um, which I hadn't really thought about before this book, but, like, obviously the evidence is usually destroyed. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, if they they started with a little match, a match is cardboard paper, you know, it's going to burn. So it's not there anymore. I guess, I I mean, I think, you know, with arson, it's hard. I mean, unless you know that it's like it's gasoline or something like that, then you can kind of, they can kind of tell the point of origin. Right. Maybe. Yeah. Who knows? You know, it's still hard to tell who could be because. Right. Well, especially like they're saying, you know, it's a public library. It, it's open to everyone. Even on that morning, there had probably already been 200 people, never mind staff, in the building. Right. By the time the fire was noticed. So, you know, and we don't keep records of who's coming and going, and they certainly wouldn't have been doing that then. Exactly. Other than the staff, there's no way of knowing who was in the building. I mean, obviously, you know who was supposed to be working there that day, but. Right. um, So, yeah, that sort of made it uniquely difficult in the you know, in the library fire. Right. Um, and yeah, I think it was earlier chapters where they talked about how, you know, there was always the possibility that a librarian had set the fire and like, what would they do then? Which, um, you know, was sort of psychologically, I mean, there's a, there's a psychological thriller plot for you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for I mean, sure. That would be terrifying, but but never mind the fact also that it was, you know, kind of hard to investigate because it was such an enormous building. Right. Um, I mean, I think they described the building a little bit in chapter 16 where they're getting into like, you know, the design for the building that was eventually, that eventually caught fire. And I don't think they gave a square footage, but you know, I mean, it takes up basically a whole city block, right? Yeah. So, I mean, I can't imagine how many thousand, I mean, for context, anyone who's ever been in Memorial Hall Library, we're about 55,000 square feet. Right. Um, and I would think, you know, we do not take up a whole city block. No. Um, I guess we do technically take up a block in Andover, actually, between Essex and Pearson. But LA city blocks are a lot bigger than Andover blocks. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I feel confident sure. about that. <laughs> so, I mean, you know... I think that building could easily be, you know, 200,000 square feet, probably more. I mean, probably more. Yeah. There's no way you can keep track of what's happening in every single part of a building that large. No, Um, no. I mean, you know, even here, we can't always be keeping track of everything. You know, we try to walk around, we have staff throughout the building, but, um, but yeah, so I can only imagine how that problem would be compounded in a place like LA and right. How are, you know, no one, no one saw the fire start, except, you know, if someone said it, whoever the arsonist was, maybe they saw it, but uh, no one else seems to have, you know, observed the fire starting, so you can't even know for sure exactly where. Right. Like, where and when that happened. Right. Um, it's, yeah. yeah. I guess that's why it makes for a good book, because there's a good mystery at the heart of it. Yeah, and I mean, they had so many phone calls, too, um, accusing people because, you know, yeah. 
neighbor looks, you know, you know, like he could, he could be an arsonist or, mm-hmm. you know, oh, I loved that part. It was so funny. <laughs> um, you know, all these different reasons why people were, were calling in. And I guess, you know, the only, the one that was, you know, um, viable was Harry Peak right. and uh, Harry Peak's roommate's sister. Yes. She calls it. Kind of yeah. called the tip line. Um, and she's like, this guy looks exactly like the composite sketch and he's been talking about setting the fire. Maybe yeah. you should check him out. Which, right. you know, was obviously, um, you know, obviously more accurate than, like, this one. Sirs, the arsonist who burned your library is Mr. Theodore V. of the ex-porno cinema. He is the number one mafia don in Massachusetts. He is also a drug kingpin and was pushing his drugs while in L.A. Like... (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) What, like, what does... Nothing in that has anything to do with library fires. No, no. I mean, this is not 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 related whatsoever. Really, no. Just totally out of left field. I mean, yeah. I you can see why they were prob why they were very excited to get the tip on Harry Peak because you know it was actually viable rather right. than yeah just or um the uh the medium on the radio medium spirit channeler psychic oh, whatever yeah. you want to call that guy who who claimed that he that he you know could use his spirit senses to find out who the arsonist is but but he didn't want to right right <laughs> and he was very vague yes right very very vague right saying the sort of things that could apply to you know anybody anybody exactly um uh, I just, I mean, that to me is really just the flavor of Los Angeles, though, isn't it? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a wild place, full of full of interesting characters, for sure. Harry Peak among them. I mean, right? You know, not not as um, not as out there as the psychic, maybe, but no, he definitely, he definitely seemed like a character. Yeah, um, you know, and the sort of. Uh, what's the word? Stereotypical, like wannabe actor, who right. you know never made it, never made it big. Um, maybe never made it on screen at all. I no, think, I don't think he did. No, yeah, I think she looked and she found a couple of people with sort of similar names, but but he never seemed to make it into anything. Not with a credit, anyway. Um, right. Yeah. I also so related only because it's a similar name. I was interested in one of the chapters, possibly when they were talking about the maps, they mentioned a patron called Harry Pigeon. Uh, oh, yeah. But I guess he was the second person to sail solo around the world. And apparently he got his boat building plans and nautical information from Los Angeles Public Library books. Right. Yeah. I was just looking at my notes and I just saw that. Yeah. I thought and, and that was another fun. fun fact, too, is that um, Prohibition. Mm-hmm. Um, when prohibition was coming mm-hmm. about, all the books on how to make alcohol yeah. um, at home were checked out due <laughs> to an article that said prohibition wasn't acted. Right. Um, the books would be destroyed. Mm. Everybody went and borrowed them all. Yeah, and presumably <laughs> didn't bring them back. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that I'd forgotten about that, but yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty funny. Um, yeah. I mean, I do think. 
not specifically with prohibition, but I think definitely books on sensitive topics are still some of the ones that are most likely to not come back to us, to get checked out and never returned, or to get stolen. Now that we have a big problem with materials being stolen here. Yeah. Um, but, but definitely some of the more popular titles are more likely, right. you know, or yeah, sensitive titles. Um, or maybe more likely to not, you know, to get lost, to not make it back to us. Yeah. Um, also, I think it was Glenn Creason who said later on, but one of the librarians, you know, decades later, realized that they had helped um, the serial killer, the Night Stalker, who had been in the library looking for books on astrology and torture. Oh, and, uh, yes. That's and right. I think I they know. figured it out when they saw the, like, mugshot on TV. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, I know him. Yeah. Probably not getting those books back either, but No. <laughs> uh, no. 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 Well, I think I think that covers most of the notes I had. Um, I don't know if there was anything else from those chapters you wanted to touch on. Well, you know, I was kind of looking at the like um um the equal rights mm, um amendment. Yeah. Um and the directors that they had, like they had fired um, one of the directors just because she was a woman. Yes, Mary Jones. Yes, and um, that's when they hired um, Lummis. Yes. Um, but then, I mean, that that they had two women before that. Right. Um, and then they hired Tessa Kelso. Was just yeah. They had a few uh, women. Kelso and Jones were some of the more interesting ones. Yeah, and uh, Mary Jones was the first um, city librarian with a library degree. Yes. Um, And then, of course, Lummis comes along, and he doesn't have a degree. He doesn't have any experience in libraries, no, really no qualifications, but they're just like, oh, he's a man. We're, you know, we like him. Right. Pay him more. (laughs) We're going to fire the woman and pay the man more, even though he's less qualified. Right. Exactly. Yeah. But um, I guess Mary Jones, um, she also hired um, uh, the first Afro-American. Yeah. um, And encouraged um, her to choose materials that uh, she would like. Yeah. Getting, you know, diversity. Right. Yeah. It's, I mean, you know, I feel like it's so easy to kind of look at these things and see them as sort of kind of cut and dry or, you know, like, oh, that was a bad time. But there were, you know, there were good things happening too. Like you were saying, you know, hiring an African-American librarian to work in the branch library with a big African-American population and encouraging her to buy books that would appeal to her patrons that were about their experiences. Right. Um, it's crazy that at the same time that that was happening, you know, the woman was getting fired for being a woman, mm. um, basically. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that it's it's not always as straightforward. Right. It's right. Like, now, oh, those were the dark days. They weren't allowed in the library either. Or they had yeah. their own own room. Right. Right. You know, the ladies' reading room. Right. It was mostly men. Yeah. Oh, uh, one I mean one um last fact too that yeah. um I read in there that um uh, if you read lots of fiction or reading lots of fiction was discouraged because mm-hmm. you were labeled a fiction fiend. <laughs> yeah. I love it. 
Um, <laughs> I think we would have a lot of those these days. Yes, yes. I'm not really sure, you know, the, the uh, percentage or ratio of our books, but my guess would be it's, it's a lot of fiction. Yeah, the fiction, I feel, is definitely more popular, gets, you know, noticed more, talked about more, um, read for fun more, although I think that's maybe changing a little bit with, I mean, with the rise of books like the library book, which is sort of a narrative nonfiction. I mean, it's, it's true, but it reads more like a, you know, like a mystery novel. Yeah. Um, so I'll be interested, and I feel like that's relatively new in the, you know, in the history of nonfiction. And it'll be yeah. interesting to see if that kind of changes perceptions about, you know, nonfiction as being kind of boring and dry and something you would consult to find a specific piece of information versus something that you would read for fun. Yeah, I mean, well, several of our books for the Andover Reads that we've done for past years have been nonfiction. Yeah. And um, they were really good. I mean, yeah. Boys in the Boat oh, yeah, was uh, fantastic. Was we did yeah. The Worst Hard Times was the first one. That mm -hmm. one was really good. Oh, I haven't done uh, that, but I'll have to look for it. I usually like to do nonfiction on audio in the car. Yeah, and then he, um, after The Worst Hard Times, he wrote one called, um, it was about the, the American Forestry Service, mm -hmm. The Big Burn. Oh. oh, that sounds interesting. That was really good. More fire. <laughs> on the West Coast. Yeah. <laughs> Seems to be where the big fires are out here. But yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. But that would I those both sound really interesting. I'll have to add them to my add them to my list. Yeah. Um, I'll sort of I'll do I'll do anything nonfiction if it's interesting enough and if the narrator has a good voice. Yeah. Um listening I'm listening to a biography right now of Elizabeth of York, who was Henry the mother. I know nothing about her, but, uh, but it's more interesting than I thought it, it would be. There's a lot of intrigue, you know, yeah. royals murdering other royals. <laughs> uh, everyone's named Elizabeth or Edward or Henry, so it's a little bit confusing to keep track yeah. of one, but I, can see, yeah. I don't worry too much about that when I'm in the car, you know. I just, I sort of go with the flow and like, who's being murdered now? Who's being married now? Oh, no, you know, now Henry's invading from France to try to take the crown. It's very dramatic. So <laughs> I've been enjoying that. That's good. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we'll wrap it up there then. Um, the, like I said earlier, the next episode, we will be talking about chapters 17 to 21. I believe Beth from Children's will be joining me for that one. Um, you can listen to this podcast. Obviously, you found some place to listen to it if you're hearing this now. But if you're looking for other avenues, it's available on our website at mhl.org slash podcast. Or you can listen and subscribe in Apple Podcasts, in Spotify, and in Stitcher. And if there's someplace else you'd like to have it available, you know, send us an email at rdesk at mhl.org and we'll see what we can do. Uh, that's R as in reference desk. Or if you have any comments, let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Um, so we hope you'll join us next week. Bye. Bye-bye.